Welcome back to the Far Middle Podcast. I'm Nick Deolius, serving as your host and delighted to be with you this week. First week of April when this episode first airs, so here's to hoping that you were not suckered with an April Fool's joke a few days ago. You know, I wanted to warn you constant listeners to be prepared for that during last week's episode, but I simply forgot to. Anyway, um, the origins of April Fool's Day goes back to the 1500s in France, and historians speculate that it started when France switched from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar. That changed the start of the new year from sort of late March, early April to January 1st. And when that switch was first made in France, a lot of people were either unaware because news traveled very slowly back in the day, or they forgot about the new calendar and they were still celebrating what they thought was the new year in late March. So those celebrating New Year's in late March became the butt of jokes and pranks from those people in the know, which of course occurred right around April 1st. Hence, April Fool's Day was off and running, and it really took off in Britain during the 18th century. So let's get to our dedication for episode 98. We started out talking about April Fool's Day, which has two connections to our dedication in the world of sports. First, the date itself coincides with about the same time one sees the start of baseball season. So it's when you first start to hear those happy, magical words of play ball, especially pleasant after a long, great winter. And the second connection to April Fool's Day for our dedication speaks to how what may have been the greatest feel-good event in baseball in a generation, how it turned out to be either quite the hoax or quite the tainted accomplishment depending on your views with respect to performance-enhancing drugs and sports. So we spent some time a couple of weeks ago uh, talking about some of the greatest players in the history of baseball who were not in the Hall of Fame, many of them because of their links to steroids. All these factors converged into the year 1998 in the made-for-TV home run chase that unfolded during the 98 Major League season. Now, 61 was one of those magic numbers in sports for decades. Single-season home run record held by Roger Maris when he played for the Yankees for a long time was viewed as essentially an unbreakable record. But then you had a new era of power hitters that emerged in baseball that convinced some experts that Maris's record was in peril. Ken Griffey Jr. and Cecil Fielder, those are two players who made a serious run at 61 home runs prior to 98. But in 1998, the two names that captured the nation's attention as they chased the 61 home run mark were, of course, Mark McGuire of the Cardinals and Sammy Sosa of the Cubs. And back and forth, they went all season long. McGuire started out hot and basically sustained a home run pace that had him beating the record for effectively the entire season. Sosa, he started out slower, but he went on an epic tear of home runs in the month of June. And by the time you got to early August, Both uh, McGuire and Sosa, they were neck and neck, and they presented a serious threat to the Roger Maris record. And by the way, a lot of baseball fans forget that Ken Griffey Jr. wasn't far behind in the home run race in August of 98. But by late August, Sosa and McGuire were tied at 55 home runs each, and Griffey was, uh, was fading pretty fast. Now, the interest level, it amped up exponentially across the nation for two reasons. First, you had a neck-and-neck horse race between two larger-than-life baseball stars playing in baseball-crazed cities. And second, both Sosa and McGuire, they were on a pace to easily break the Maris record. So this race had a very high probability of being history in the making. And there's probably a third facet um, to the public interest or fascination of the 98-season home run chase, which is that Sosa and McGuire, they were sort of rivals and they were sort of buddies. And since the two teams were in the same National League division, 
uh, they went head-to-head quite often. Now, speaking of that head-to-head nature of the home run chase in 98, McGuire ties Maris in a game against the Cubs, and then a day later, he broke the Maris record against the Cubs. And the Maris family was in attendance. Um, Sosa was playing in the outfield when McGuire hit his 62nd of the year. And needless to say, again, must-see TV. A cool and interesting note, by the way, about McGuire's 62nd record-breaking home run. It was the shortest home run for McGuire that season, barely made it over the wall and didn't even make it into the stands in the outfield. And the guy who ended up retrieving the ball was a groundskeeper at Bush Stadium who was a law school student. And that ball would have fetched millions of dollars at auction, but the groundskeeper decided to give to McGuire. Um, Sosa hit 62 home runs later that month, and that basically put Maris at third all-time. McGuire, of course, finished the season with 70, and Sosa wrapped up the 98 season with 66. Um, Sosa ended up winning the MVP in 1998. Now, that magical 98 baseball season, when it comes to the home run chase, it didn't last long without suffering some major reputational damage. So first, Barry Bonds set a new all-time single-season home run record with 73, but then the daylighting of rampant steroid use throughout the major leagues took front and center stage, and it effectively eviscerated the achievements of McGuire and Sosa and Bonds. And McGuire and Sosa, you know, they went from heroes to villains almost overnight, and the single most damaging event for both, I think, was their congressional testimonies surrounding alleged steroid abuse. McGuire's testimony effectively stated that he wasn't interested in telling the truth because the public wouldn't believe anything he said anyway. And Sosa had even less to say. He gave the impression that he didn't seem to understand the questions that were being asked of him. Um, neither came across as credible. I think both suffered severe reputational damage that lingers to this day, and at least to date has kept them out of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, maybe in the end, our dedication to the 98 season in baseball and the home run chase should be dedicated to the asterisk, because when Maris broke Babe Ruth's record, the infamous asterisk was attached to 61, because Maris had more games to achieve the feat than Ruth did. And some critics place an asterisk next to Ruth's mark because he played during a segregated era um, when the pitching talent, of course, was split into major and Negro leagues and it wasn't concentrated into one league. But then ironically, McGuire and Sosa and Bonds, now they've got that mark attached to the number of their records, and this time because of questions swirling around steroid use. It's strange that from Babe Ruth in 1927 to Roger Maris in 1961, um, to McGuire and Sosa in 98, and to finally Bonds in 2001, two things tie uh, these players across decades together the single-season home run record, and the asterisks that attach to each of those records. We've already made a series of dense connections. April Fool's Day, in the start of baseball season, single-season home run record, and how the rules matter. All of those lead to yet another connection, an interesting historical event that occurred once again in early April, this time in 1964, in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Uh, President Lyndon Johnson was desperately trying to get through the Civil Rights Bill, which would put an end to racial segregation. From my perspective, LBJ got a lot of things wrong, the biggest being his Great Society failed experiment, which continues to run on to this day, bigger and more expensive than ever, but still an epic failure. But he did get something epically right with the Civil Rights Act, and he was the classic old-school politician, never resting, always wheeling and dealing. So let's set the stage. The House and Congress, they pass a bill on civil rights that went to the Senate. 
Now, Johnson knew in the Senate the bill was going to face some fierce opposition from Southern senators. And this is where our connection to rules comes into play. The Senate opposition to the bill was led by Senator Russell, who ironically had a longstanding political friendship with LBJ. But on civil rights, Russell and Johnson, they were on opposite ends of the spectrum, and only one is going to be able or would be able to prevail in this instance. Now, Russell's plan was to use the filibuster rules in the Senate to effectively talk the bill to death. And LBJ knew time was not on his side, and he obviously was desperate to bring the bill to a conclusive vote in the Senate. Now, within the Senate rules, there's what's known as the quorum call. If there are less than 51 senators on the floor, any present member could call for a quorum. And if a quorum could not be reached by finding additional senators to show up, the Senate would have to adjourn for the day under the rules. And if you kept repeating this quorum call process each day, a person such as Russell, who wanted to stop a vote from occurring on the Senate floor, he could basically run out the clock till the date when the Senate would adjourn uh, as a, as a uh, chamber. Now, LBJ became very frustrated with Russell's mastery of the Senate quorum and filibuster rules. So he called in liberal Senator Hubert Humphrey, and he chastised him for not being aggressive enough working the rules in the way that the opposition-led Russell was working the rules. So LBJ and Hubert Humphrey, they developed a, what basically they ended up calling a corporal's guard of 10 civil rights-supporting senators who each took on the responsibility of being able to call up a handful of like-minded senators when a quorum call occurred. So the civil rights supporters, they never missed a quorum call after that. And the bill was ultimately passed and signed, of course, into law in the summer of 64, 1964. But here's where the story connects to baseball. It's opening day for the Washington senators. And not surprisingly, a lot of senators in Congress were at the game to watch the senators on a baseball field play. And ironically, a lot of those senators went to the baseball game at the invitation of LBJ. He was hosting um, their, their attendance and their visit. Now, on the Senate floor, while the game's going on, Southern senators stayed put at the filibuster. And then when they saw the floor empty, they called for a quorum. And as soon as the call went out, Hubert Humphrey's corporate corporal guard, they jumped into action. And before you knew it, at the stadium where the game was being played, the public announcer broadcasted a message that all senators had to report back to the Senate for a quorum call. All the senators at the game, they rushed back to the Capitol, and the quorum call met the necessary threshold. Like I said, LBJ was one of the architects of big government, so not one of my all-time favorites from a policy perspective, but on civil rights, obviously he moved us forward. And when it came to the art of politics and its machinations, how the sort of rules and the plumbing worked, there was no one better suited and more focused when locked in than LBJ. Speaking of big government, let's connect to a little bit of a frightening trend. We've talked on numerous occasions in prior episodes of the looming debt crisis in government. Now that we are sitting north of $31 trillion of debt load, and now that interest rates are rising, which means the servicing cost on that debt is skyrocketing as well. I spent five minutes last week plotting out how the national debt has grown over the past number of decades. Because yes, you know, President Biden is as bad as it gets when it comes to outspending and inflating debt that's going to uh, burden future generations. But he didn't get to $31 plus trillion alone. He had lots of help from his predecessors in the Oval Office. So consider this scary timeline. First time our national debt eclipsed $1 trillion, it was under the term of President Reagan. Now, Reagan and Congress, who at the time Congress was led by Speaker Tip O'Neill, 
they agreed to a budget where defense spending went up along with social programming spending. And then by the time George Bush, the first presidency was up, national debt quadrupled to $4 trillion. President Clinton in Congress, and at the time Congress was led by Speaker Newt Gingrich, they achieved what today looks to be the impossible, which was not raising the federal debt. So kudos to President Clinton, at least during his second term, for doing fiscally what presidents before and presidents after have been unable to do. But then after Clinton, the real government outspending and debt growth began. Um, George Bush II took the national debt to $12 trillion, which was a doubling from where it sat before his presidency. And then President Obama ratcheted the national debt up by another $8 trillion. President Trump and halfway through President Biden's tenure have added a combined $11 11-plus trillion dollars to the national debt load. That's an amazing feat when you think about what it takes to outspend to the levels that will generate trillions or tens of trillions of dollars in deficits and debt. So we went from $1 trillion of debt when President Reagan was in office to over $31 trillion in debt with President Biden in office. That level of debt sitting at over 120% of GDP in a rising interest rate environment, it spells epic economic trouble when running the simple but brutal math. Entitlements are going to need to be reformed. Tax revenue will need to be increased. In government austerity, it must arrive at a locality near you. Without these severe measures, the only possible outcome is government default. Now, something that would help dig our government and nation out of this massive debt crater would, of course, be economic growth. And for economic growth, a prerequisite is job growth. When people work and business booms, government ends up seeing more tax revenues, and it also experiences less outflows for entitlements. Again, it's pretty basic stuff which ties to the next connection regarding the statistics and data surrounding jobs in the United States. Ran across something a few weeks ago that at first blush I couldn't believe and thought I had misread it, and I wanted to share it with you constant listeners today. So let's go back a little bit in time to the second quarter of 2022, about a year ago, and specifically with the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And it was issuing uh, job growth numbers for last year's second quarter. Now, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the current employment statistics it first reported for the second quarter of 2022, was printing a number of about 1.1 million jobs created, which was a really strong result. And that second quarter number for 2022 was trumpeted by our president, as you would expect, and it certainly helped with those running for re-election during the midterms later that year. But now we see that the Bureau of Labor Statistics grossly overstated the job numbers for the second quarter of last year. The Philadelphia Federal Reserve did its own calculations and found that the second quarter 2022 jobs number was overreported by more than 1 million, which means instead of the official Bureau of Labor Statistics jobs number of 1.1 million jobs created, that actually happened when you look at the reality after the, the relook was a very paltry level of jobs created effectively when you do the adjustment flat job growth. An online uh, financial platform, they went even further than the Philly Fed. And they estimated that from April to September of last year, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they overstated job growth by as many as 2.7 million jobs. Now, if the financial media and the Philadelphia Fed are even close to being correct, then it raises some serious questions and concerns about the accuracy and the legitimacy of basic economic data that's published by the federal government these days. 
the United States federal government is not the same as the Chinese Communist Party. And when the Chinese government reports GDP or other economic data, one's always going to take it with a grain of salt because you realize, you understand that those data are there to serve as nothing more than state propaganda. But with the United States federal government and its economic data reporting, one has always assumed a high level of rigor and accuracy that accompanies the published metrics, which has earned, I guess, a certain level of legitimacy and trust when it comes to the data. But when you start to see these gross inaccuracies and wild swings in something as fundamental as job creation numbers, it's not going to take long for a reputation for legitimacy that took decades to build to come crumbling down quickly. You know, it's what they say about reputations, years in the making for a good one that can be ruined in a heartbeat. And speaking of government's accuracy in reporting data in the state of government finance, let's connect to the topic of where the balance sheet and income statement of that business that we call the federal government is sitting today and where it's heading in the near future. The Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, released its latest budget and economic outlook sometime around mid-February. The picture was not a pretty one. Projections show rapidly deteriorating fiscal health, which is being driven by recent legislation and rising interest rates. Um, there's not a storm brewing as much as there is a storm currently underway. Now, government debt-to-GDP ratio is going to continue to grow in the coming decade, especially if Congress extends uh, expiring tax credit and spending provisions. And if recent history is any indication, extensions of those provisions, they are a certainty. The CBO also added nearly $3.5 trillion of new deficits to the forecast. That's $3.5 trillion more debt added to the next 10 years than what the CBO projected just nine months prior. And most of that additional debt was driven by a substantial increase, 20% increase, in deficit spending. CBO is projecting a U.S. budget deficit of nearly 6% of GDP over the next 10 years. That level of 6% of GDP for budget deficit and the increase that that represents from prior projections, that's atypical. That is anything but normal. That's quite unusual. And federal spending is projected to remain significantly higher than the long-term average, which is the main driver of the increase in projected annual budget deficits in addition to the government debt load. And one of the biggest takeaways from the CBO updated projections for the next decade was that interest costs and mandatory spending, they were the largest drivers of federal spending increases. So in other words, interest expense and mandatory spending are increasing each year, taking a bigger and bigger bite of GDP. And discretionary spending, it's actually flat relative to GDP, or at least is projected to be flat over the next decade. So you take away all these metrics with respect to where we currently are at with the state of the federal government's financial health and where CBO is projecting it will head in the coming decade. And you reach a conclusion I mentioned earlier, which is something has to give. And that brings us to yet another connection, which is the squeeze play, to use a baseball term, that the federal government finances are already trapped within. If you assess the makeup of federal spending generally and holistically, you'll see three large buckets that constitute the total spend each year. Now, the largest bucket by far, and it's not even close, constant listeners, is mandatory spending. It's north of $4 trillion a year. Now, what's in that mandatory spending bucket? Some monsters. you got Social Security, you got Medicare, Medicaid, and, of course, interest expense, and those are the four biggest. Worse yet, uh, this bucket is only projected to get worse over time, at least without reform. And that's because interest rates are going up, which will increase outlays for Social Security through cost of living adjustments. 
and certainly increase, of course, interest expense on all that government debt. So outside of entitlement reform, this monster of a bucket of federal spending is only going to get larger and larger. Now, the second bucket of spending is defense. Technically discretionary, but with today's world being marauded by Russia and Iran and North Korea and last but not least China, do you think defense spending is going to decline, stay flat, or increase? Yeah, defense spending might be discretionary, but that discretion looking into the next decade seems to be pointing towards increased, not decreased outlays. Now, the third and uh, final major bucket of federal spending, it's non-defense discretionary. And by the way, defense discretionary and non-defense discretionary spending, they're about equal. They're about the same levels at $800 billion per year. In other words, that first bucket of mandatory spending, it's over five times the size of either defense discretionary or non-defense discretionary spending. Sort of puts everything in perspective. Now that you've seen and understood sort of the magnitude of these three buckets that constitute federal spending each year, you can appreciate the squeeze play. Government debt is too high of a level already, so budgets have to be balanced at a minimum, or better yet, we need to start generating budget surpluses to start paying down all that debt and to start being able to cover increased interest expense on that debt from rising interest rates. But to do that, you can only squeeze so many more tax dollars out of value creators, which means inevitably you're going to have to cut spending. But non-defense discretionary spending is a small piece of the overall federal government spending puzzle. And it's not going to be easy or advisable to cut defense spending in this day and age. That means the so-called mandatory components of spending, $4.1 trillion worth a year, has to be brought in line. And that's going to be painful when you consider what constitutes that bucket. Again, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and various forms of income support. But there's no way around it. To ignore it or to avoid it due to its unpleasant nature, that's a failure of not just leadership, but it's also a failure to accept mathematical reality. Austerity in the arena of government spending is coming, constant listeners. It's the only way out of this mess short of government default, which I suppose represents an even worse version of austerity when you think it through. Now, speaking of the unpleasant nature of austerity and entitlement reform, you know, it's not going to be easy, and no one should kid themselves to anything different than the reality. A current example of just how painful entitlement reform can be brings us to our next connection, which is the situation in France regarding retirement age of workers. France has embraced a much more socialist approach to economy and government over the years compared to the United States. So it's not surprising that the French government is facing a tougher fiscal situation than even we are. And the current retirement age to enjoy a full pension in France is 62 years. French President Macron wants to raise that age to 64 years and have it fall in line or move toward most of the rest of Europe. And by the way, the United Kingdom has an even higher retirement age than 64 years, which is at 66 years old. So even a modest increase in retirement age by two years, it set France ablaze, literally. Trade unions have protested, and in some instances, those protests have turned violent. 240 protests across the nation and 1.4 million protesters based on one count. I'm sure that's growing. Paris at times looks more like a war zone than a capital city. And this all goes to show that even modest entitlement reform is going to be extremely unpopular and very challenging, even under dire fiscal conditions that you see in the West. But that doesn't change the fact that entitlement reform must be part of the solution to the fiscal mess that the United States has dug itself into over the past 40 years, 
starting with President Reagan. And by the way, wouldn't you know it, but a bipartisan group of U.S. senators are talking about raising the retirement age for Social Security to age 70 gradually. So watch this as it unfolds. Uh, we will for sure with the far middle. Well, it's getting to the point in time where we're going to have to bid episode 98 adieu. That along with merci is the extent of my French. We've been talking about how government and its leadership is often deaf and blind to current tangible existential risks, including the fiscal ones we discussed in this episode. But the government and leadership blindness and deafness can also deal with other types of risk as well, including military and war risk. It leads us to our final connection, which was back in 1941, a dictator by the name of Joseph Stalin was warned about a pending German attack by a slew of different signals. FDR warned Stalin that once Germany conquered France, Hitler would turn on Russia. The Prime Minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, also tried to warn Stalin. Spies that the Soviets had in Germany were delivering a steady stream of intel for warning of war. Germany had its diplomatic personnel and citizens leaving Russia. The German Luftwaffe flew hundreds of missions over Soviet airspace to recon, and the Soviets knew about it. You know, even little, little and smaller um, signals were evident. German guards at border posts, they stopped saluting their Soviet guard counterparts. Um, Polish women on the German side of the River Divide would yell at acquaintances across the river on the Russian side about pending war. But Stalin wouldn't listen. He remained largely unconcerned. The Nazi propaganda machine may have contributed to his false sense of security, claiming, among other lies, that rookie Luftwaffe pilots were simply losing their way and the troops were massing in the east, basically to avoid uh, air raids from the British. In dismissing the reports of war as British provocation, Stalin continued to ship raw materials to Germany, and he ordered his men not to fire on German planes that crossed over the border. So rather than focusing on defensive preparations, he occupied himself with another round of purges, and that, of course, started to sap uh, the leadership of his military at the worst time, just when he needed it the most. So his refusal to listen to the reality, fed by a mugging of data, um, that cost his nation dearly in terms of millions of lives lost and the nation itself pushed to its brink of existence didn't have to be that bad if Stalin would have paid attention to the reality and facts. Now, with our government's fiscal mess, we hope it's not a matter of millions of lives at stake, of course, but in some way it is because if we don't fix this mess, millions of lives will certainly be materially impacted for the worse. So let's demand that our leaders wake up, accept the reality, and start leading on a path forward. This isn't some April Fool's joke. This is the far middle. Talk next week.